0: We're gathered to commemorate Good Friday. Good Friday uh, not because we have joyous tones. Good Friday not because we are um, thrilled and excited to relive the death of our Savior. Uh, Good Friday because of the outcome of His death and that He knew what He was approaching willingly and for our sake. You wonder what it is that's so profound to a Christian about the death of Jesus the death of one man. After all, Jesus was not the only person who was crucified on a cross. The Romans were well known for their acts of torture, uh, for their ability to cause long suffering, and to invent creative ways for people to die. But there are few traits about Jesus in particular that pulls at us. Uh, One of the traits that makes His death so profound for us is that Jesus is a man fully innocent, the only man that is fully innocent you know, we think about the death of uh, a child. We think about the death of um, a kindly uh, older woman who spent her life caring for others. We think about the death of those who uh, seem to have committed no, fa- no faults and no flaws, but only Jesus maintained His innocence throughout His life uh, like babies without the naivete. Jesus' death is also profound to us because of His greatness. I see more and more people mourning the death of celebrities, of athletes, of those who they have never met in real life, and it seems to cause them some sort of profound sadness. I know that uh, we all mourn the death of great men like our presidents. Um, We mourn the death of the saints, of those who have exhibited this otherworldly quality. And we also mourn Jesus because He has an incredibly uh, personal impact for those who who have walked with Him, who have known Him. Uh, Because one of the other uh, traits that makes death profound is the trait of uh, somebody who is personal to you, someone who you know very well. Yeah, I was reading in preparation for Lent, I always try to pick up a book that uh, really opens up the world of pain and suffering to me, and it sounds like a very uh, morbid activity, and it is, but it's also profoundly worthwhile because in our day and age, even our suffering because of COVID-19, not all of us have been personally touched by the death of those that we care about. Not all of us are walking through the suffering that many are experiencing. You know, in the last hundred years, uh, last hundred, hundred and fifty years, our lifespans have increased from uh, 40s and 50s to late 70s and 80s. We don't wonder where our next meal is going to come from. We take more than two baths in a year. Uh, We have profound… We've we've changed in, in profound ways, and so we don't always get to experience the full suffering and death, the evil that has come into the world. But if you follow the story that we read in the Passion up to it, what Jesus goes through are some of the most profound things that any person can go to to experience suffering. He experiences betrayal. Betrayal of someone that is close to Him. Now, I want you to consider for a moment what that felt like for you. You see, when… When you experience betrayal, it's not that one person wounded you, it's that your entire world falls out from underneath you because something that was so substantive, something that was so real, a relationship that you thought you knew fell away, and you begin to wonder, well, what else? What else in my world have I thought was true and has turned out to be entirely false? Who else is lined up to betray me? Are any of my relationships solid, or do I have anyone that is loyal to me? And you actually have a breakdown of your world, and you have to reconstitute it. You have to enter into a new reality if you've experienced the fullness of betrayal. And Jesus, as we know with Judas, was betrayed with a kiss. Well, what else did Jesus have to experience on His way to the cross? False accusations. We've all been falsely accused, have we not? We've all had to experience what it's like to have our names dragged through the mud or be put on defensive and have no way to justify ourselves when we cry out with the psalmist for God's vindication. And we find, at least for the time, that the voice from heaven does not respond. False accusation is also a profound way to have your world rocked, and Jesus, as we know, being ultimately innocent, was falsely accused by the very people that had cheered for Him a week earlier. To be denied. To experience the denial of someone who's close to you. you. Know, when I was reading this book, I was reading um the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn, and what they experienced—betrayal, false accusation, denial, public ridicule, torture, hopeless condemnation. Hell on earth. Walking through these very footsteps of Jesus. You know, when the the communist government was first forming. One out of every four or five people was a government informant. That meant that you had one and every member of your family. And if you heard something that could be considered seditious at all but did not report it, then you also would be reported and you would be dragged from your home in the middle of the night with no time to collect your things, brought to an interrogator. They had a book of rules and regulations, right, of rights of prisoners that no one knew, not the interrogators themselves nor the people who were subject to it. And if you saw your neighbor or your grandmother or your child being dragged out of the house and you spoke a word in protest, you did not deny them, you would be taken up as an enemy of the state. Now, most of these accusations were entirely false. There was one story of um, a man who was appointed to a government position, so they got the entire town together, and they're all standing around and, and, you know, uh, started to sing their great anthem in praise of Stalin… And how ludicrous this event was is that they continued to go and they had to uh, manufacture enthusiasm and excitement and cheering and and clapping and be fully, you know, fully enthused because there were people in the crowd that were looking around for the first person to stop clapping or cheering or singing or lower their heads. And what ended up happening is one of the business over after ten minutes of this ridiculous ongoing celebration that everybody was afraid to stop. He was on the stage and he just very calmly sat down. And everyone else was grateful because they could finally rest their tired arms and shoulders and they could quiet their mouths. And uh, of course, what happened is the very next day he was taken in and interrogated and shipped off to a camp. So we have betrayal, we have false accusations. He did nothing but stop cheering, we have denial just as Jesus was denied by Peter three times, His closest friend. We also have public ridicule. Jesus was up on the cross, and not only was His accusal, not only was His false accusation made, uh, made known, but He was ridiculed by everyone that was around Him. You know, this is the equivalent of if you've experienced uh, making a misstep and having that misstep made public and walking around hangdog because it hangs over you, torture. You know, the reason that Jesus sweat blood the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane is because He was so entirely stressed out, and when you are at that level of stress, your body can actually secrete blood from your pores. But what happens is your skin becomes incredibly tender, tender to the touch, like gout, so much so that to wear clothing over it would cause a great deal of pain, and so it was that skin that was whipped with cords that had bones, pieces of metal, anything that could cause deep, Pain, and he was lashed. The Jews would do the 39, the 40 lashes minus one. And the reason was because the belief was that if you lashed somebody 40 times, they would die. And so let's bring him to the brink of death. And so through muscle and sinew, through the flesh, down to the bone, he was lashed. Having a crown of thorns placed on your head must have seemed like a mercy. And then to be hung on the cross. When you're hung on the cross, you are nailed, and in in Hebrew, the hand isn't just the hand here that we have. The hand covers this entire part, including the wrist, and so to be supported, we're all familiar with the nerve here that causes extreme pain, that has to be pierced in your wrist in order for your bones to support your body. And so He was hung, and when you hang on the cross, you die from suffocation because your body can no longer support your weight. Your lungs can no longer hold up your body, and so you collapse onto the cross. Torture and hopeless condemnation now for us, for anybody, for His disciples looking at the cross, expecting this great Savior, you weren't taken off the cross alive. Even the thieves who had managed to survive up at that point to expedite the process, they broke their legs so they could no longer hold themselves up so they would suffocate more quickly. And so it seemed as though there was a hopeless condemnation for Christ, hell on earth. There's a real problem of evil, and this is the problem that we come to face with in Christianity. Every religion has to come up with their concept of why in the world does evil exist. Eastern pantheistic religions try to say that the problem… they try to deny suffering and deny evil altogether. They say that your suffering is, is an illusion. That the physical world isn't real. And so, mind over matter, you just have to become a stoic and shut yourself out to suffering. The problem is, when you numb yourself to suffering and pain, you also numb yourself to joy and to love, to excitement. If you've ever spoken to someone who, who is depressed and is feeling numb, you'll know that they are numb to all things. Atheists tend to be caught in the middle. In one breath, they are claiming that there is no good, evil, or justice. They say that it's all an illusion that we just dance to the music of our DNA. But in the next breath, they are outraged at the injustices and evil done by religious people in the name of God. They try to have it both ways. Only theists say that evil is real, and we try to explain how evil and God can coexist. And the answer that we have is original sin. You and I are the source of evil. You and I are the source of all kinds of evil. To help understand creation in the fall, imagine that you have three iron rings that are suspended from a magnet. You have a magnet and you suspend three iron rings from them. The magnet is, the, is God. He's the source of life, He's the source of love, He's the source of all goodness. And God created us in His image to be the very second ring on that magnet to be the very second ring on that magnet, to be His image bearers in the world, that uphold the world, that care for the world. And through us, the magnet has conductivity to all of the other metal rings. Well, as soon as humanity detaches itself from the magnet, all of the rings fall apart and are shattered. As soon as we detached ourselves from God, all of creation fell. It it failed to hold together. And what a responsibility it is to be a link in the great chain, what power to be made in the image of God, to have the power to create and to destroy of our own wills, to affect long-term consequences on the world, and to be uniquely responsible to bear those consequences. You know, it's it's, it's amazing, every single time that disaster struck the Israelites, be it famine or plague or an invading army. They cried out to the Lord, and then their very next move was to search their own souls and say, what could I have done to bring this evil upon myself and into the world? And they sought to repent in that manner, and Christians, that is our call. We continue to – we can can ask the questions of why does evil exist? Does evil have a greater purpose or a greater good? Is evil's purpose to point others to God? Is evil's – purpose necessary as, a free, as being beings of a free choice. However, Scripture never appeals to these reasons or justifications when addressing the problem of particular evil. God doesn't give us any of these answers in Job. What He says to Job after Job complains about the evil of the world is He says, would you condemn me to justify yourself? You see, we're so often judging God by the state of the world instead of judging the state of the world by the character of God. When we fail, when our world fails and falls apart, it is because we are not living in the standard which He has made for us because we are not being connected to Him, mind, body, and soul. And without that connection, we can't help but be progenitors of evil. Scripture doesn't appeal to justifications but says for us to bear the responsibility of our choices and look to the cross. You know… There's, really, there's profound wisdom in this. Two really impactful psalms in discussing the problem of evil are Psalm 88 and Psalm 13. Psalm 88, and I would encourage you to read these at length later, Psalm 88 is a psalm about despair and darkness and being left alone to your own devices, and this is how Psalm 88 ends. It says, but I have… Tr-, it says, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness." And there's nothing further. That's the end. That is one who looks at the evil of the world, condemns God, and says, I will rebel against you. I will depart from you. I will lean in despair because you are far from me and you will not be near. But Psalm 13 has a very different ending. It begins with the same lament, the same terror, the same pain, the same heartbrokenness, the same abandonment. But in verse 5, something changes profoundly in Psalm 13. It says this, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. This is taking responsibility for the evil you have brought into the world and trusting in the character of God to judge the world by His nature. I brought up the camps that they were brought to, and Soldier Solzhenitsyn said, When you were in camp, you could notice a soul's ascension to come out of the bitterness and the pain and the slog and the mud of it, because what they would do is they would take their suffering upon themselves. They would look around the camp, and they would say, I may have been innocent of my charge in getting here, but I have done things, and I will take this as my punishment upon myself, but I will trust and I will hope. And he said it was the religious people, the Orthodox, that were in camp and the Baptists that held this so strongly. And he said most of them died because they weren't willing to change their nature or corrupt themselves in order to survive. But their character and their strength is reminiscent of what we see in Jesus looking on Jerusalem with His face set like flint, allowing Himself to be placed on the cross. And so I want to conclude with this. As we look at the problem of evil and of suffering, our faith calls us to bear our cross to partake in Jesus' crucifixion, and in that crucifixion to see hope. We as Christians are those with hope. The disciples, when Jesus was being crucified, did not know that He was going to be resurrected. They had been told, but they had no idea, and so they scattered, and the light faded, and it was dark. But we as Christians know what's coming, and even in our darkness, we have that light of hope to guide us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would bring to mind for us those areas of blackness that we have contributed to the world, that we would not look at You and rage and shake our fists, that we would not become like the darkness that we have created, that we would not try to revenge ourselves on those who have harmed us, and that we would not try to revenge ourselves on You. That we would instead look to your character of love, of faithfulness, of compassion for us, knowing that you entered into the world of your own volition to suffer and die in our place, to experience full abandonment from God on the cross, and to rise again, conquering death and suffering, to remind us that this light but moment and momentary trouble is nothing in the face of eternity with you. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.